Well, hello, class, and welcome to another episode of the TM366 Basic Christian Doctrine Podcast. I don't know about you, but I'm getting a bit tired of podcast lectures, so you might be excited to hear that there's only one more new lecture left after today. After that, we move into exam review content. I'll have a podcast up, some review exercises up on a PowerPoint slide, and the study guide is already available to you. The exam format is going to be similar to what it would be in class, except in digital form. So you'll have multiple choice, short answer questions, and an essay. If you haven't done so yet, please go ahead and download uh, the study guide and start trying to fill it out. A reminder on how I grade short answer questions. If you leave it blank, you can't earn any points. But any content put down can earn you some credit. If you're able to put down something generally related to the question that I'm asking, you'll earn even more credit. Basically, short answer questions are an opportunity for you to show me that you've learned something. So take the opportunity, even if you don't know the answer to the the specific question asked, and try and provide me some other information. So there's a tip for you, and if you have any questions as you're studying, feel free to send me an email. Turning now to the subject of today's class, we are actually going to be thinking through one of the possible subjects for one of your essay questions. I show you what your two options are. One of them is on the doctrine of the church. You see, so far we have talked about the doctrine of the church at a theoretical level. I've pointed to the four attributes of the church. The church should be one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. However, we've also seen the way that a number of different Christians disagree on how to interpret these attributes. Even though they understand that, biblically speaking, and according to tradition, churches have these four attributes, what it means to have them is a matter of dispute. So on your essay question, one thing you could look at is disagreements between different Christians on these various perspectives. However, there is another way in which this ideal is something of a myth. It is the case that everyone agrees that the church should be one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, even though we disagree about what that means. But it's also the case that arguably the church does not live up to any of these four attributes. Today, I'm going to make that point by focusing in on one attribute in particular, Catholicity. Though in discussing this, inevitably I'll touch on the issue of holiness and on the issue of being one. Now, I'd like to start with a quote from a theologian named James Cone, the founder of what's known as Black Liberation Theology. Here's the quote. Cone says, Unfortunately, theologians have tended to give an inordinate or unusual or disproportionate amount of attention to the doctrine of the church. An ecclesiological perspective, so a perspective of the church, that seems to exist nowhere in society except in their minds and textbooks. This clever sophistry enables pastors and other church officials to justify existing church institutions without seriously inquiring about their historical faithfulness to the gospel message that they claim is the foundation of the church's identity. In other words, we can step back at a theoretical level and say, the church is holy, the church is Catholic, it's present everywhere. And yet, if we use that to say, therefore, the church is a good thing, we might be neglecting the fact that on the ground, the church may not be a good thing. It may, in fact, be complicit in evil. And there are a number of instances in this class where we've explored 
such complicity. We've explored complicity in the Holocaust when we discussed how German Christians handed over the baptismal records that made identification of Jews possible. Arguably, complicity of Christian leaders in the Holocaust led to it being far more successful in the mass killings of millions of Jews and Slavs and members of the LGBT community and individuals who are mentally handicapped. The scope of the Holocaust is directly affected in part by actions of Christians. We discussed Desmond Tutu and Ubuntu theology, which he used to push back against apartheid. And you may have missed this in a shortened version of the lecture, but in fact, much of the church was complicit in apartheid. Tutu had to make a theological argument because he needed to persuade Christians that their acceptance of such extreme racial segregation was unacceptable. We looked at Latin American liberation theology, uh, which sought to fought totalitarian governments that were torturing many members of Latin American societies in the 70s and 80s, for example, that denied many human rights. But again, you have to read between the lines, but the reason that folks like Ignacio E. Acaria, who you read for class, had to make an argument in favor of protecting the poor is that there were many in the church who did nothing and who were therefore complicit in the atrocious acts happening in Latin America. Now, each of these subjects, I could make the topic of today's discussion about the failures of the church. But in some respects, this would be an easier conversation. The Holocaust involves German Christianity, apartheid involves South African Christianity, and liberation theology was in response to Latin American Christianity. And while I have had students in my classes from each of these regions, the vast majority of my students do not come from these places. So it would be much easier to critique these places. I think it's far harder to turn the scope a bit closer to home by considering failures of the American church to live up to the theological ideal of what the church should be. So that's what I want to talk about today. Because even if you were not American in terms of your nationality, you are at least American in the sense that you were here for a time to study at Sterling College. So the particular sins of the American church, and more specifically, the white American church that I want to address, was the complicity of the white American church with much racism in American history. Now, I should be clear here, I'm only able to touch on the surface here. I'm only able to uh, give you the minor details. There are exceptions for each of these instances. However, they are the exceptions that prove the rule. So we can point to white Christians who were abolitionists, who were involved in the civil rights movement, and so forth and so on, but their existence does not mean that these descriptions do not fit the majority of white Christians in the United States, historically speaking. So that's a big footnote, that's a big lead-in, but let me introduce you to some basic pieces of data from American history. In the 1600s, when the slave trade from Africa was really taking off, churches began to require slaves to sign statements saying that they were not seeking baptism as a basis for emancipation, so as a basis for being freed from slavery. Why would they do this? Well, there were some who were arguing that theologically, if you receive the one baptism, you are a member of the one church of the Catholic Church that is present in all peoples and places. And if that's the case, you must be treated as a brother and an equal. 
And obviously, you're not treating a slave as a brother and an equal. So baptism was thought to maybe be an argument for emancipation. So many white American Christians therefore denied baptism to slaves unless they were willing to say, I want to be baptized, but I don't want to be freed from my master. Turn to the early 1700s. One of the most famous evangelists in American history is a man named George Whitfield. He went around and had a successful preaching ministry that converted thousands during the 1700s. He was also renowned for running orphanages that helped children that had nowhere else to go. But what many do not know about George Whitfield is that he was instrumental in the introduction of slavery to Georgia. Initially, Georgia did not allow slavery. Whitfield was having trouble fundraising money for his orphanages in Georgia. And a friend pointed out that if he was able to use slave labor, his expenses would decrease. So Whitfield actively petitioned the government of Georgia to allow slavery in its state. And being the massive Christian celebrity that he was, he was one influence over Georgia's eventual decision to become a slaveholding colony and state. By 1790, shortly after the new constitution had been established, the question of slavery arose. Virginia Baptists voted that slavery was an issue for the state, not the church. This is a doctrine known as the spirituality of the church. The church should be concerned with winning souls, not emancipating slaves. As a result of this, in the 1700s and 1800s, different Christian groups like Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists split over the question of slavery, some groups endorsing it, other groups saying that slavery was immoral. Even here, though, among anti-slavery groups, there was often still discrimination, and it was very difficult for a black Christian in the United States to find a community where they would be welcomed as fully equals. Therefore, we also see the emergence in the 17 and 1800s of various independent African-American denominations. So the African Methodist Episcopal Church or the AME Zion Church, for example. Into the 1900s, after the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, but still under Jim Crow law, we have many noted Christians who were arguing, again, for the doctrine of the spirituality of the church. The church should be concerned about souls, they argue, not concerned about the struggles of various races within this country. This is normally where I would stop and we would have a discussion, where I would ask Christians, how should we respond to these features of American Christian history? Yes, there were Christian abolitionists, but that was not the norm. The norm is that Christians in this country were complicit with this sin of slavery and racism and segregation. Unfortunately, we cannot have that discussion through podcast. But if you're a Christian, it's a very serious and important question. And so I challenge you to take the time, either by pausing this now or by reflecting later, to consider how it is that we should respond as a church. So on the one hand, we have the theoretical claim that Christianity is Catholic, that the church is present everywhere, and that by being present everywhere, it is able to become one, overcoming these divisions among us, such as race. The history of the white church in the United States shows that that ideal is often not lived out in the church. Often the church 
the local church, individual Christians and groups of Christians can be the exact opposite of this ideal. And yet things are even more complicated. Often after our discussion, I ask students a series of questions. For example, where is the largest church in the world? Often students respond, Italy. After all, that's where the Pope is. Or the United States. We're very Christian. However, the actual answer is Seoul, South Korea, where the Yoido Full Gospel Church has 850,000 members. I usually ask what nations in the world have the highest percentage of Christians, and usually students say something like Great Britain or the United Kingdom. They say the United States. Um, again, they say Italy. But in fact, East Timor in Asia is 99.1% Christian, the highest percentage of self-identified Christians in the world. Only 15% of all Christians in the world are European. By another count, and there's some debate here on the numbers, it may be as high as 23 or 24%, but the majority of Christians are no longer in Europe as they were in the 1600s. In fact, even the Church of England, the Anglican Church, doesn't have its highest Sunday average church attendance in England, it has it in Uganda. So on any given Sunday morning, at least when there's no pandemic, stay-at-home order, and churches are actually gathering, you will find more members of the Church of England in Uganda than you will find in England. So all of these points of data tell us that there's another sense in which it is very true that the Christian church is a Catholic church. It is a global church. I have a map on slide six that shows that there are 500 million Christians in sub-Saharan Africa. The Americas are combined to give us 800 million Christians, but a massive percentage of those are found in Latin America. On the next slide, you can look at pie charts. In 1910, 66% of all Christians were European. But by 2010, the Americas had grown, but Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia and the Pacific had grown even more, so that Europe was only 25% of Christians. And as I've told you now, 10 years later, that number is thought to be even lower. 25% here is among the higher numbers that I've found. In fact, based on projections by Philip Jenkins, by the year 2050, the countries with the largest Christian population will include Brazil, the Philippines, Ethiopia, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. By 2050, there will be twice as many Christians in Asia as there are in North America. And by 2050, only 20% of Christians will be non-Hispanic whites. So on the one hand, we can point to the white American church and show that they have historically not lived up to the ideal of Catholicity because they have embraced racism. And sadly, there are still many aspects of the American church that can be subject to this criticism today. However, it's also the case, case that the church truly does extend far beyond white North American Christians. And that there are those among white North American Christians who embrace this broad diversity. So what do we do to accept the doctrine that the church is Catholic and one and holy while facing the reality that on the ground things are far more complicated? The church is marred by racism, even as it's characterized by growing racial diversity. This is one place that I believe the doctrine of the Holy Spirit plays a significant role in theology. 
And if you've not been paying close attention, you might feel that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit has been fairly neglected. After all, we've had whole days dedicated to the incarnation of Christ and the doctrine of the hypostatic union, and to Christ's work in atonement. But we've had no equivalent full days dedicated to the work of the Holy Spirit. So let me remind you that the Holy Spirit is involved as the one who unites us to Christ's humanity and union. The Holy Spirit is the one who is associated with our sanctification. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and understood through all the divine attributes and through that doctrine. The Holy Spirit is also, however, particularly important for the doctrine of the Church, and especially for this question of Catholicity, whether we can truly be a global Church. You see, in the book of Acts in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost and enabled peoples from all nations and tongues to speak to one another in their own language. We see similar phenomena happening repeatedly throughout the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit is given in dramatic way to new ethnic groups, from the Samaritans to the Gentiles. In each instance, miraculous gifts of the Spirit confirm these new groups being included in the Christian church. Now, commentators will say that the speaking of tongues is in some sense an undoing of the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, Christians were dispersed, excuse me, not Christians, there was no Christianity yet, humans were dispersed at the Tower of Babel for trying to be like God, and they were divided into different groups that spoke different languages. Yet through the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, different groups are brought together and able to speak with one another once again and formed into the singular church. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 12 to argue that the Spirit gives gifts to all Christians for the common good. So the gifts that I have as a white male North American Christian and the gifts that an Asian female Christian in India have are meant to be complementary, to help one another. All in order that we may form one body. So the work of the Holy Spirit here is intended to be a work that establishes the Catholicity of the church. Paul again reinforces this in Ephesians chapter 2, where he argues that because we are in Christ, those who are far away have been brought near. For Christ created in himself one new man from the two. So speaking of these two different groups of Jews and Gentiles who weren't together, the Gentiles who were far away have been brought near, and they have been joined together into a single type of humanity, resulting in a new peace. For we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The Spirit is given to us that we may be joined with one another and united. Now, this coming of the Spirit is not meant to extinguish diversity. Um, this is often one problem that is faced today. We are willing to work together across different racial and ethnic groups, different language groups and cultural groups, but often the expectation by one of the groups is that the other group will simply assimilate and adopt the same cultural perspectives and preferences and ideas. But Pentecost is an image of diverse expression of praise. People continue speaking their different tongues, but they are now simply able to speak to a wider range of people. Similarly, 2 Corinthians 13.14 speaks of our having the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The idea of having fellowship means that 
Each of us retain our distinctiveness while being related to one another. The Son is manifest as a single human being, but the Spirit is simultaneously active and present within many different people groups around the world at this very moment. So what do we do in facing the reality that the church is not actually one and Catholic and holy to the extent that our theories say it should be? Well, there are two approaches. The first is the one that Cohn critiques. He says we can use that theory to justify the actual sins. People critique the church. We might say you shouldn't critique the church. The church is holy. It is God's body. It is the one Catholic manifestation of God's will for the world, known around the world. On the other hand, we could use the resources of theology to acknowledge and preach against the sins within Christianity. This is the example that we found find among William Seymour. Seymour was a black American who was influential in the founding of Pentecostalism, a fourth branch of Christianity beyond the Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant branches. At the turn of the century, a number of Christians in the United States, and actually one major example was in Kansas, uh, claimed to have received the miraculous gift of tongues. Wanting to learn more about this, Seymour traveled to Kansas and then to Texas to learn from a white American named Charles Parham about these gifts. Here, Seymour was not allowed even within the same church building. Parham made him listen from outside with the window open. Seymour heard teachings that argued that the Holy Spirit should be giving gifts today, but he did not encounter Christians who would unify across racial divisions. So Seymour left and began a revival in California known as the Azusa Street Revival, which is what truly launched Pentecostalism into a large movement. Like Parham, the white American he had studied under, Seymour argued that miraculous gifts of the Spirit were available today. And that's a, a big debate that unfortunately we don't have time for, given our shortened class. However, he also argued that if you receive the Spirit, that spirit should enable Catholicity. And he understood that that Catholicity, that breaking down ethnic barriers, would be an eschatological reality. It's an end times reality. We can start to experience the end times now, but we can't fully expect to be there in the future. We can't fully expect to be there until the future, excuse me. So, Seymour argued on the basis of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit for multiracial inclusive worship. His was one of the few religious movements in the United States in the 1910s that allowed multiracial leadership. And for that matter, allowed uh, shared leadership between men and women, all by appeal to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So Seymour gives us an example of how the resources of Christian theology, which are faithfully being represented from what's taught in the Bible, can be used to advance the moral character of the church and the Catholicity of the church, rather than be used to hide the moral failings of the church and the failings of Catholicity. And I have to say I am hopeful that the impulse of individuals like Seymour seems to be winning, given the statistical data that Christianity is growing so rapidly in cultures around the world. So I encourage you to leave and think about what you can do through your own theological ideas and actions to advance whatever church community you may be a part of so that it is closer to that ideal 
that we talked about last class. And even if you don't want to take that mantle upon yourself, at the very least, think about this question as it's another possible means of answering the dispute essay uh, for your final exam on the dispute about how the doctrine of the church is uh, or is not to be understood. So that's the end of today's lecture. One more left on the doctrine of the sacraments. Until then, though, I hope you're all well.